0: If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 2, you can find it on page 384 on the church Bibles, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the Word of the Lord
1: thanks Reese. Um, if you can keep your Bibles open to uh, psalm two actually we 'll go through we 'll jump through uh, different parts of the Bible today. so if you have a Bible, please keep it open. That would be great and also once again, uh, this is uh, the structure of the the, the sermon. Slightly is different than normal. The first point, once again, I want to warn you, will be the longest. So once again, if, we, if you're still going, Hugh is still in his first point, I just want you to know that that's where I'll be for the most of the, the, the time. And the second and third point will be more application and, and, and faster. So I want to warn you before I um, do that. So um, can we pray that God will speak to us? Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, uh, sharper than two-edged sword. Um, we thank you that we um, can hear your voice uh, through the scripture. And we pray that as I a point to uh, Psalm 2 this morning, that you will make your uh, voice very clear to us, that you will speak to each one of us, that it will shape our lives and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we, we pray. Amen. When Obama's first campaign um, for presidency, Americans were captured by this image image of hope. And I don't know if you know actually, but uh, uh, the millions of people watched also this Will I Am video which I thought was very, very well done and moving. I I mean, I I watched it multiple times. The lyrics were, were really enthralling. It talked about, it says, three words that will ring coast to coast. Yes, we can. Actors and actresses, other famous people gathered together and sang these words, Obama's words. Yes, we can to justice and equality. Yes, we can to opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Yes, we can. Yeah, that was Obama's first campaign. But when he campaigned the second time, the... The tone of the campaign changes a little bit because he can't possibly, he couldn't possibly deliver all the things that he had promised that he would deliver in the first campaign. Prosperity, justice, equality, opportunity, healing of the nation and of the world. Of course he couldn't do this because as gifted as he is as a politician and a speaker, he's a human being. Even with the most powerful position in the world, he's still a human being. But this sort of optimism isn't just an isolated incident. This happens all the time. Um, have, uh, haven't we always been looking for this perfect leader to come along and fix all our problems? Isn't there always optimism when a new, uh, a new president or a new government takes place? Isn't this a reason why we love fictional stories like the King Arthur stories or you know, Return of the King? We are looking for the right king to follow, the one who would come and actually fix all our problems. And we see this sort of optimism in this psalm, in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is most likely a coronation psalm, a psalm that was read as the new king of Israel was being crowned. His subjects are optimistic. They ask, why do the nations conspire and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed is the king. He's being anointed and crowned as the king, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Of course, these questions that they ask are rhetorical questions. They're saying it's foolish to conspire against the Lord and his anointed one because the new king uh, is on, uh, God is on the new king's side because uh, uh, the, the the new king doesn't have to flinch. Because God laughs and scoffs Um, in verse 4. He rebukes and terrifies his enemies in verse 5. You see, their plotting will come to nothing because Israel's king is God-endorsed. God calls him his king in verse 6. And the language gets even stronger in verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. The king of Israel wasn't just any king. He's called here the son of God. God says this king would rule on his behalf. And the sentiment is that if God is for this king, then who can be against him? Theologically, this made sense why the king would be so closely identified with God, um, God's son even. This is because king of Israel was supposed to live and breathe God's law and rule like him. Um, actually, Iona, could I just leave you to do the clicking? Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're in slide number four. Um, this, this is a... Oh, actually, we are there yet, sorry. <laughs> uh, this is the Old Testament description of what a king, job description of a king. At Deuteronomy seventeen, eighteen, through 20. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of a Levitical priest. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. You see, the king wasn't just supposed to rule. He's supposed to get the copy of the law. He's supposed to meditate on it day and night and read it and rule as God would rule over this world. In fact, uh, some scholars think that Psalm 1 and 2 are actually one psalm together. And if you, if you have your Bibles open, look at Psalm 1 and what it says about, uh, about this person. Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. The words that echo the Deuteronomy's description of what a king is supposed to be. The king is supposed to represent God and rule as God would rule. If this is the case, then the offense against the king of Israel would be an offense against God. Because God, uh, the king, would have all the characteristics of the righteous uh, and just God. And the king and its nations would never fail, because effectively, God is ruling this kingdom. But, as you can see, this is a bad idea, isn't it, in some ways? Because... It's almost, sort of, it's almost as if it's setting itself up for a failure. How is a man supposed to rule like a god, like God? Of course he can't, and no king could. We find that Israel and its kings fail again and again throughout the history of Israel. And the words of this psalm, Psalm 2, in some ways seem not to come true at all. We know that parts of the psalm didn't come true because Israel and its kings were at one point overthrown. Right? Psalm 2 said that the plots of the enemies, that the conspiracies would come to nothing, that they would be in vain. The nation of Israel would not fall, but we know that it's fallen. We know actually that the nation of Israel does not exist for 2,000 years, for about 2,000 years. It didn't exist as a nation. It was overthrown. What does this mean then? Had the words of Psalm 2 failed? Does this mean that Psalm 2 isn't a true? Yes and no. Like most biblical prophecies, it has this historical dimension. It's partly fulfilled in history, in part. Uh, in, in fact, different parts of Israel's history, we see Psalm 2 coming true. For example, in the 6th century, the Assyrian Empire came and surrounded. They took, um, overtook most part of Israel, and they were surrounding, uh, they were surrounding uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It was the last to fall. But then King Hezekiah prays, and then somehow, mysteriously, the Assyrian Empire, uh, the Assyrian army uh, uh, is destroyed, and they had to return back home. Their plotting came to be in vain. Their conspiracies came to be nothing, because God was the, the, the God of Israel, God of Jerusalem. God broke them with the, the, the rod of iron. And as we all have already said, but, but as we have already said, actually, but we know that it's also failed because it, doesn't exi- it didn't exist for 2,000 years. This is because these words of Psalm 2, partly fulfilled in history, actually looks forward to Jesus. Jesus Uh, Jesus' first coming, to greater and more complete fulfillment with Jesus. And what the New Testament writers realize um, is that they look at Psalm 2 with a different lens after Jesus' coming and Jesus' resurrection. And they see actually Psalm 2 wasn't just about the kings of Israel, that it was actually about Jesus this is why the New Testament refers back to this psalm, Psalm 2, over 15 times. It's throughout the New Testament. For example, I mean, you, you know this, uh, the gospel writers record, record God saying, You are my son, whom I love. And the phrase is echoing Psalm 2. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. Slowly, the disciples realize. That this psalm, Psalm 2, was wasn't um, was about a person who is not just called the Son of God, but who is the Son of, of God. And Paul gives a sermon, when Paul gives a sermon about identity of Jesus in Acts 13, he stands up in a synagogue and teaches about the identity of Jesus. Paul quotes uh, uh, verse 7 of this psalm directly in Acts thirteen thirty three. The writer of Hebrews, talking about the identity of Jesus, quotes this psalm twice. Saying that Jesus is the Son of God, that this uh, this psalm pointed forward, and isn't it true? Uh, and, um, and and this is true that this psalm also applies to Jesus in other ways. Think about how the authorities, the King Herod, Pilate, plotted against Jesus. That came to nothing. Although they succeeded in killing him, God raised him from the dead. Their plot was in vain. And, and, and verse 8, that applies to Jesus too. Jesus is not just a provincial God, God of Israel. But Jesus is the God of uh, the whole nations and of the whole earth. The whole earth is his possession. The nations are his inheritance. So this psalm describes Jesus, doesn't it? But then you might also object Yes and no, because parts of, parts of this psalm seems to apply, seem to apply to Jesus, but not the other parts, not so much. Yes, you might say it's true that uh, Jesus' enemies failed in plotting. But what about now? The nations still conspire against Jesus. The Muslim ex- extremist uh, groups like ISIS and Boko Haram uh, rule parts of the Middle East and, and parts of Africa. New atheists, likes of uh, Richard Dawkins, are on the offensive against Christianity. And their plans seem to sometimes succeed. But what about the promise of the psalm, that their conspiracies and plans would come to nothing? And although the gospel has made great progress, it's reached all the corners of the earth, and yet the earth, the nations have not fully become his inheritance, and the earth not fully yet his. And also there is that judgment that this psalm promises that we see it so strikingly. You will break them with the rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Verse 9, that certainly hasn't come yet, has it? Where is the judgment against ISIS? Where is the judgment against those who conspire against Christ? We don't see it now. But this doesn't mean that it will, we won't see it. You see, this psalm has this third horizon. It looks forward to Jesus' second coming. Jesus will come back. You see, when he comes... All these things that have not yet come true will come true. There will be a judgment. The wicked will be broken. Their conspiracies and plotting will come to nothing when Jesus comes back. And the nations and the whole earth will become his. God, Jesus, will claim all of it for himself. And actually, interestingly, the New Testament book that has most allusions to Psalm 2 is actually Revelations, book of Revelation. that looks forward to Jesus' coming. Revelation 2, 27, 12, 5, um, and, and, and 19, 15, uh, it quotes uh, uh, verse 9 directly. I'll just read one, Revelation 19:15. 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's... That he will rule them with the iron scepter. That's the verse nine. He treads a winepress of fury of, of, of the wrath of God Almighty. What John is doing in Revelation is he's looking back to Psalm 2 and saying, actually, although it hasn't come true yet, it will come true. Jesus will come back. Now you are under persecution, but he will come back and judge the wicked one with the iron scepter. He will break them uh, to pieces. Psalm 2 will come true. And uh, in your bulletin, there's that picture in the, in the very front, and I have a picture that's sort of like it. As you can see, Jesus is holding an iron scepter in one hand and the whole earth on the other hand. That's the picture that the that, that Psalm 2 has, been, uh, has given. And that king is King Jesus. He will come. You see, this psalm isn't just a coronation psalm about the historical kings of Israel. It is a prophetic psalm that was about the, the king um, the, king, the true king of Israel, Jesus, the Lord himself, the Son of God himself. Jesus is the king. He is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. He is the one who lives that law and rules according to God's law. He is the true Son of God, and he's been making the whole earth his inheritance, Nations, uh, the earth his possession, although the time of judgment hasn't come. It will come. The promises of the psalm will come true. Now, well then, what does this mean then for us? Well, first of all, I hope that you can see that this means partly that we can be confident that the Bible is the Word of God. That the promises of the Bible will come true. That God is faithful to His Word. You know, it might not be according to the sense of our timing. After all, this psalm was written about a thousand years before Jesus came, right? But they had to wait a thousand years for the true king of Israel to come, but he came. And we can also be confident that the rest of that psalm will come true in time. The scripture is true. We can rely on it. And knowing this should also give us great confidence and boldness in our life. You know, we might be phased by arguments by the new atheists, cower at the threat of violence with, uh, uh, the, the, from Muslim extremists, worry about China's influence over the church. But this picture gives us what, how Christ reacts to all that. He laughs. He scoffs at their plans. And we can take comfort in, in that when the world seems out of control. And the church under persecution, we can take comfort in in knowing that God is still the King, that God is in control, that God is ruling this world. In fact, this this uh, is how the early church read. In one instance, uh, this is how uh, the early church read it and understood it. So, if you turn to Acts four, Acts four, Acts four records the first outbreak of the persecution in the early church. Peter and John were jailed um, and then they they later were freed. And what they do is they actually go back to the church and at the church they read the Psalm. Psalm two. I think it'll come on the screen. They read Psalm two and then in verse twenty five they pray. They pray for boldness. They reassure themselves that God is ruling over this world that people's conspiracies against uh, Christ will come to nothing, against the church will come to nothing, and they pray for boldness, that they might trust in this and go out and still preach the gospel even under the threat of persecution. They pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with uh, Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, they applied this psalm, Psalm 2, to their situation. They remember that the most powerful of Jerusalem conspired against Christ, and it came to nothing. That what, there, 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 there is persecution, but it will come to nothing. In fact, you remember that even Christ's enemies only did what Christ preordained them to do. So they prayed for boldness. And we see in a similar way, a similar situation, I think, in China. And by the end of the World War II in 1949, uh, they, they, there were approximately one million Christians in China. But soon after... Um, you know, came the communist China and the cultural revolution and all of that, that really sought to destroy the church in China. But by 2010, after all of that, there were 58 million Christians in China. By 2014, 67 million one professor, one sociologist in Purdue University, estimates that, it would, that that number will swell to 160 million by 2025. He thinks that actually at this rate, uh, by 2025, there will be more Christians in China than there, there are in the U.S. And he uh, told a reporter in Telegraph, um, Mao thought that he could eliminate religion. He thought that he had accomplished this. It's ironic because they didn't. They actually failed completely. He says, and as many of you know, China even sends out missionaries to places around the world. In fact, some even go to North Korea. One of the uh, the underground church person uh, who was interviewed by the Telegraph um, says, "We want to help, and it is easier for us than for the British South Koreans as uh, or American missionaries." The same article wrote um, that new spread of Christianity has the Communist Party scratching its head. This is, act, uh, this is uh, Psalm 2 happening all over again, isn't it? Why do the nations conspire and people plot in vain? The Christians whose churches are shut down in China, those who are driven out of their homes and face death in the Middle East, Christians who face alienation um, because they stand by the Orthodox teaching and historical view on human, a biblical view on human sexuality. Christians who face the subtle pressure in the workplace to compromise their faith. All of us, no matter what the situation is, we can be bold. Christ rules. People who conspire against Christ, their plans will come to nothing. And this choice to stand with Christ or not, well, there aren't too many times, I think, that, uh, where choices are so clear. And this is one of them. There seems to be only one good choice. The psalmist concludes in verse 10. So, kings, be wise. This isn't just for the rulers who rule, uh, authorities who... Uh, but this is for all of us who have potential to oppose Christ. It's for all of us. Be warned. The psalmist says that the choice is obvious in verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Serve him, submit to him, or be destroyed. And Jesus, once again, came as a meek and mild baby the first time. He came humbly. Most people in the world didn't know that the world had changed when he first came. But this won't be the same when he comes back the second time. He will come in glory, in a way that the whole world will be able to see him come. He will come in power and might. His wrath will finally flare up. And if it were anyone else demanding such obedience, I would say such a demand for complete obedience is, not, uh, is unfair. If, you, if I said to you, be utterly on my side, listen to everything that I say, well, Mary will stand up and say, no, don't listen to him. <laughs> because she knows me. She knows my good side, but she knows also my bad side. She knows that I'm a mixed person. She knows me. No leader is absolutely perfect and no leader should demand this perfect obedience. King, De- king Saul, David, Solomon, every king that followed failed in many different ways because they're fallen people. But you see, Jesus is a different kind of a king. When Christ says, serve me and serve no other, it's fair and just because there's nothing wrong in him. Because he is the son of God. Because he has no sin and there is no injustice in him. He's perfectly just king. Which is why I think the thought of uh, this judgment is so scary in some sense. Because, you know, it's one thing to be judged by me because um, I'm a sinful person. I can sympathize um, with you. But what about, what about being judged by this perfectly just person who is completely sinless? And completely holy, and it would be scary, actually, if Jesus were just that. But he's also love, and because he loves us, he made a way for uh, he made a refuge for us, a place created by the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. He prepared for us he prepared uh, uh, us for the judgment day so we can hide in him that we can stand with him he died for us so that we can we might have the place of refuge when he comes back so i hope you see that jesus is the king the son of god that you belong to him and you see then that there's nothing for us to fear in all circumstances even when all the world seems to conspire against Christ and his followers, that we can be bold. Do you see that following Christ is a no-brainer in view of the history, in view of who Jesus is and what he will do? So he concludes, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And for those of us who still haven't made that choice, I hope the choice is obvious take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, we once again give you great praise for your word. Lord, that it speaks to, it spoke to people 3,000 years ago. That it spoke to people in the time of the New Testament 2,000 years ago. That it speaks to us now. to to shape us, to form us. And Lord, we pray that you'll assure us of your kingship, kingship over our lives, kingship over the nations of this whole world, and help us to be bold, help us to be your witnesses, no matter what the situation is, and help us to be wise and follow you in all things that we do. And Lord, for those of us who still haven't made this choice, Lord, we pray that you would speak to them through the power of your Spirit, that you would convict them of um, the the kingship, your lordship, your son's lordship over their life. And we pray that they might give their lives over to you and follow you as their Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.